This message is brought to you by ABC Church in Ammonford, West Wales. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org. Um, a few weeks ago, Jen and I couldn't come to church because I was celebrating my birthday, my daughter's birthday. And while we were at home, somebody phoned us up from the church, and unfortunately, they got our Liam Neeson answering machine. So I, I just want to apologize. Um, you know, Liam Neeson is on our answering machine to ward off cold callers, not to threaten brothers. So if you felt in any way intimidated by threats to kill you, well, um, shouldn't phone me in the morning, should you, really? Simple as that. Okay, then. Um, this morning's word is called Lazarus the friend of God. And I'm going to read a decent chunk of scripture to you. And if you've got a problem with that, well, uh, Leaks is open if you want to go somewhere else. But otherwise, we're going to listen to the word of God here. I'm reading from chapter 11, uh, verses 1 to 44. There was a man named Lazarus who lived in the village of Bethany with the two sisters, Mary and Martha, and he was ill. It was the same Mary, the sister of the sick man Lazarus, who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair. The sister sent this message to Jesus, Lord, the man you love is ill. On receiving the message, Jesus said, this sickness will end not in death, but in God's glory. And through it, the son of God will be glorified. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed where he was for two more days before saying to the disciples, let's go to Judea. The disciples said, Rabbi, it is not long since the Jews wanted to stone you. Are you going to go back again? Jesus replied, are there not 12 hours in the day? A man can walk in the daytime without stumbling because he has the light of this world to see by. But he walks at night, he stumbles because there's no light to guide him. He said that and then added, our friend Lazarus is resting. I'm going to wake him up. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's able to rest, he's sure to get better. The phrase Jesus used referred to the death of Lazarus, but they thought that by rest he meant sleep. So Jesus put it plainly. Lazarus is dead, and for your sake I am glad I was not there, because now you will believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, known as the twin, said to the other disciples, Let us go too and die with him. On arriving, Jesus found that Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days already. Bethany is only about two miles from Jerusalem, and many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to sympathize with them over their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus had come, she went out to meet him. Mary remained sitting in the house. Martha said to Jesus, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now, whatever you ask of God, he will grant you. Your brother, said Jesus to her, will rise again. Martha said, I know he'll rise again at the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said, I am the resurrection. And if anyone believes in me, even though he dies, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Yes, Lord, she said, I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, the one who was to come into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in a low voice, The Master is here and wants to see you. Hearing this, Mary got up quickly and went out to him. Jesus had not yet come to the village. He was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews were in the house sympathizing with Mary, saw her get up and go quickly out, they followed her, thinking that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Mary went to Jesus, and as soon as she saw him, she threw herself at his feet, saying, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. At the sight of her tears and those of the Jews who followed her, Jesus said in great distress and with a sigh that came straight from the heart, Where have you put him? They said, Lord, come here. Jesus wept. And the Jews said, See how much he loved him? 
But there was someone who remarked, he opened the eyes of the blind man, and yet he could not have prevented this man's death. Still sighing, Jesus reached the tomb. It was a cave with a stone to close the opening. Jesus said, take the stone away. Martha said to him, Lord, by now he will stink. This is the fourth day. Jesus replied, have I not told you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you for hearing my prayer. I knew indeed that you always hear me, but I speak for the sake of all those who stand round me, so that they may believe it was you who sent me. When he had said this, he cried in a loud voice, Lazarus, here, come out. The dead man came out, his feet and hands bound with bands of stuff and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, unbind him, let him go. It's an interesting story. Jesus let Lazarus die when he could have healed him with a word. He'd done it in the past. And he does it so that the disciples' faith might increase and God be glorified. Along the way, we see that Martha gets exactly the same revelation as Peter, but nobody compliments her on it, that Jesus is the Son of God. And Mary shows that sitting at the feet of Jesus might be fun, but it doesn't lead to faith. And the Pharisees show a level of unbelief that is difficult to comprehend. They decide to kill Jesus, mentioned in 1153, and they decide to kill Lazarus in 1210. And you get the shortest verse in the Bible, verse 35. Jesus weeps. What was he weeping for? Was it Lazarus? I doubt it. Lazarus is about to be raised from the dead. Was it Martha and Mary? Maybe they've suffered. Was it for the human condition? I don't know. Maybe he was weeping for himself. Six days after this event, he's dead. And he knows what kind of a death he's going to face. And nobody else yet knows it. When this word is normally preached, people often talk about faith and unbelief, about life and death. But I want to emphasize friendship. Lazarus was a friend of Jesus. And we often sing, what a friend we have in Jesus. But what kind of a friend does he have in us? And you know what? One of the truths of this word this morning is you can't be a friend of Jesus unless you know how to make friends with the people that you know. And you know what? Friendship is difficult in the 21st century because social media is deconstructing the entire human race. And there's nothing inherently wrong with social media. There's nothing inherently wrong with opates. You try having a major operation without an opate painkiller. And yet, opates kill hundreds of thousands of people a year. And it's the same with social media. 2002, an Australian young lad went out drinking and he fell down and he hurt his chin. And the next day, he posted a picture of his damaged chin on social media. And he said, I hope you don't mind if I take this selfie. First mention of the word. Ten years later, selfie is in the English Oxford Dictionary. The selfie, my goodness. What a, what a totemic way of explaining how narcissistic we've become in this age. Do you know that in China, every week they open a new clinic for people who are addicted to social media. It's narcissism. Narcissus turned to stone when he stared at his image in the pool. Martin Luther, 500 years ago, said that selfishness is the root of all sin. Steve Jobs, 2012. Steve Jobs, the man who invented the iPad. He was asked by a reporter, how much do your kids love the iPad? And he said this, I would never allow my children to use an iPad. It's too dangerous in its effects upon children. Social media is breaking the bonds that bind us together as a race. Do you know what? We see friendship as liking, 
But actually Jesus says this, friendship is about love. No greater love hath a man than he lays down his life for his friends. And don't think the opposite of love is hate. If I hate you, and it's possible, um, at least I recognize you're a person. The opposite of love is indifference. And we're in the age of indifference. We often call it tolerance, but it's not. We just don't care. A terrible example of this happened last year. A group of millennial uh, art students broke into a warehouse to do a photo shoot for their little fashion show they were putting on. And the first thing they found was a guy hanging from the ceiling. What did they do? They went into another room, and for two hours they did a photo shoot, fashion shoot. And then they left, and then they went to Starbucks, and five hours later one of them said, should we have done something about that guy who was hanging from the ceiling? And they didn't know. They didn't know what to do. So one of them phoned the police, and the police arrested them because it's a criminal offence not to report a corpse. Cops let them off, but the coroner tore strips off them at the inquest. What kind of a people are you that you could see a man hanging from the ceiling and you didn't realize that you had a responsibility? These weren't bad people. These were indifferent people living in their own little world. Three things I want to say about friendship this morning, and this is the first one. Friendship with Christ requires us to keep the covenant. And that's the covenant that actually affects our life in all sorts of areas. God has chosen to order all of his and all of our relationships through the medium of covenant, legally binding agreements. Old covenant, just with the Jews. New covenant with the Jews and with the Gentiles. Marriage between husband and wife. The covenant of the fellowship between believers and their fellowship where they meet with their brothers and sisters. And finally, the friendship covenant between brothers. The oldest one of all is marriage. Predates the old covenant, predates the fall. It's a powerfully important covenant. And yet, we haven't got the stats for Britain, but in the States, Christians are just as likely to get divorced as non-Christians, which means the covenant means no more to them than it does to non-believers. And by and large, what tends to happen when marriages break up, and there are exceptions to this, but the general rule is the guy goes, the guy leaves. The guy walks out on his responsibilities. There is a level of irresponsibility in men that is difficult to comprehend sometimes. And guess what? If you're a single parent, I suspect there was a bloke there in the past somewhere participating in what actually happened. But guess what? He chose not to live up to his responsibilities. And in the old days, and I'm talking now about the 19th century and before, if you were a woman with a child who has been abandoned by your husband or the person who was the father of your child, The options were pretty limited. I mean, you could beg, you could become a prostitute, or you could die, and that was about it. The likelihood is your family wouldn't have your back. Why? Because they probably blamed you for the breakup of the marriage. What did you do to drive them away? Women always have to take responsibility for men's failings, don't they? This is the word of God to Christian women who have either been abandoned by their husbands or become single parents because a man wouldn't live up to his responsibilities. It's in Isaiah chapter 54, verses 5 to 6. This is what God says. Your real husband is the one who made you. His name is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. The Holy One of Israel is your provider, and he is the God of all the earth. Like a woman whose husband has left her, you were brokenhearted. You were a young wife left all alone, but Yahweh has called you back to him. This is what your God says. Guess what? If you have a covenant with God, he will be your provider, even if your partner for life abandons the covenant. 
Then you've got the covenant of fellowship. We're in a covenant of fellowship here, if you're a member of this church. And this is interesting. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 to 29. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day of judgment approach. And I could leave it there and it would make a lovely word for the day. But God didn't stop there. He carried on talking. For if we go on sinning after receiving knowledge of the truth, there is no longer a sacrifice for sin, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and fire that will consume the enemies of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? Wow! Pretty tough talk, isn't it? And why did all that come about? Oh, because I neglected to go to the prayer meeting. I tell you what, God takes fellowship pretty seriously, but we don't. Because we're living in the age where, guess what? We break covenants left, right, and center. We don't actually believe they imply to us. And yet, as far as God is concerned, my goodness, they're at the center of his work with us. And then you have the covenant of friendship. Friendship is really about availability and compatibility with an emotional connection. If you're unlucky enough to break down at Pont Abraham services at three in the morning, and you're daft enough not to be a member of the RAC or the AA, who are you going to call? Ghostbusters? Of course not. They haven't got a recovery service. But maybe you've got a friend who you can call. Maybe that friend will jump in their car and come and pick you up. Availability and compatibility. This is what it says in the Old Testament about Jonathan. Uh, 1 Samuel chapter 18, verses 1 to 3. Jonathan became a close friend to David, and Jonathan loved him as himself. Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as he loved himself. Exodus chapter 33 verse 11 says this, Yahweh, God, would speak to Moses as a man would speak to his friend. It's the same kind of relationship. That's why covenant relationships with each other relate to our covenant relationship with God. And this is what Jesus said. John chapter 15 verse 14, you are my friends if you do what I command you. So friendship with him is conditional upon us doing what he tells us to do. And the weird thing is friendship with Jesus Christ is actually a little bit like marriage. It's very similar to that covenant. Uh, Bruce Kent who used to be in charge of CND. He was a, a Roman Catholic priest. And he was in the media all the time back in the 80s and early 90s. And then he left the priesthood, dropped out of CND, and he disappeared from the media. And finally reporters came up to him and, and asked him why he'd left this public arena. And he said, I fell in love and I got married. And marriage is like a, a secret garden. Nobody sees into it. But it's, it's where I flourish as a human being. And marriage really is like a secret garden. Yeah, you know, on the left, he might be growing cannabis. And on the right, he, she might be growing whatever, dahlias or something. But it is their secret garden. But guess what? Every marriage has both a private life and a public face. There's going to be that area where you go out as a couple and people see you and recognize you as a couple. Used to be the case years ago when uh, people would make claims for benefits. Um, very often, two people who were living together would pretend to be separate so they could get more money. And the DHSS would come around, they'd interview you, and they'd ask, you know, do you cook meals together? Do you sleep together? You know, do you do stuff together in the house? And they'd say, no, no, we're completely separate. But then the DHSS would go into the community, and they'd go to the post office and the pub and the cafe, and they'd say, 
are these people known as a couple in the community? And if the answer was yes, guess what? They had their benefits cut. That is the public face of a private life. It applies to our relationship to Jesus Christ. Jesus defined hypocrisy as this, a man who prays in public but doesn't pray in private. And there are some relationships, you know what, they're living a lie. Politicians often fall into this category. For the sake of their careers, they put on this front of being a happily married couple. But actually, the relationship has died inside. Christians can be like that. Public face, going to church, doing stuff. But the internal life, the internal relationship with Jesus Christ has completely died. It's a tragedy. The church can be a substitute for Christ. But how on earth can you have a relationship with Christ unless you have a relationship with the church? Think of the woman by the well, chapter 4, John. She meets Jesus by the well. She goes back to her town, and what does she say? Well, I tell you what she doesn't say. She doesn't say, come to the well. There's water in it. No, she says, come meet the man who has told me everything about myself. The well is symbolic of the church. What do we do? We say to people, come to the church. What we should really say is, no, come meet the man. But where is the man? He's not in the mosque, he's not in the synagogue, he's not in Tesco, he's in the church. And we don't understand sometimes the importance of pointing people to the man rather than to the church, but the man can only be found in the church. And if the church is a well, then that's interesting. Because all wells contain old water. Okay? I mean, nothing wrong with that. You can drink it. It'll keep you alive. But it is water that fell a long time ago. It's called still water. It's water that doesn't have oxygen in it. But the promise that Jesus gives to the woman by the well is this. I will open up a spring of living water inside you that will overflow well up, he says, to eternal life. Living water is oxygenated water, okay? Whenever I go walking on Black Mountain or in Andalusia or in Mallorca, you come across these springs and the water comes bubbling out of the ground. It's got bubbles of air in it. Fish can live in it. It tastes wonderful. But well water is still water, okay? There's no oxygen in it. That really is the difference between the water you'll find in a church and a water that God can open up inside you, a spring of eternal life. And all well water is old. Pentecostal churches, the water's 100 years old. Evangelical churches, the water's 200 years old. Methodist churches, it's 300 years old. Calvinist churches, it's 500 years old. It will keep you alive, but it doesn't give you life. And the water in the well, where does it come from? Originally, it might have come from heaven. It might have come from the sky. But you know what? When you have a group of believers around a well, and the spring of living water is coming out of them, they'll keep the well filled with living water. You know, it's up to us, guys and gals, to have that well untapped inside ourselves. And if you've ever seen those two great movies, Jean de Florette and Man and the Source, do you know what? That's the difference between a well and a spring. Gerard Dupere plays the part of this guy who inherits a farm, but the spring has been boarded up so that he can't get the water. And so he relies on water from a well, and in the end he dies trying to make his farm work. And then somebody comes along, his enemy, and they unblock the spring, and out comes the water, and the garden flourishes. And there's a twist in the second movie that I will not give away, but it's a wonderful illustration of how there's a spring in each one of us that God wants to open up, and yet sometimes the enemy comes and blocks it up. And the result? Some wells just run out of water. Go to Africa. Have a look there. You'll find watering holes that have run out of water, and they're surrounded by dead animals. 
There are some churches, people have just died. The springs are blocked up in themselves. And guess what? The well is empty. Of course, it could be worse. There's some wells that actually have poisoned water in it, which we'll look at in a minute. Jesus said this. Matthew chapter 16, verse 18 to 19. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Do you know what? I'd love to have seen the look on the disciples' faces when Jesus said that because everybody knew what the church was. Church, ecclesia, Greek for called out. The church had been around for 500 years before Jesus was even born. The church was the name that the Greeks gave to their city council. First church, founded 480 BC in Athens. The Athenians got sick and tired of being ruled over by dictators. So what did they do? They set up a church. They set up a council. And people were called out from the community. You had to be a male, you had to be an Athenian citizen, and you had to be a free man. And they got into their church and they debated and they discussed stuff. And they could sack magistrates, they could appoint magistrates, they could make people slaves, they could free slaves. And when the laws were passed, when they were in agreement about something, the law would be written on a scroll and bound up and sealed and stored by the scribes. Jesus is making a direct reverence to the city councils of the Greek city-states. There were two Greek city-states within close um, distance of Nazareth. One was Sepphoris, the other was Tiberias. Why is he using that illustration to describe the church that he's going to build? He could have used the term synagogue. The only time he ever uses the term synagogue is in the book of Revelation, when he talks about the synagogue of Satan. We have to ask ourselves, are we in the church of Jesus Christ, modeled upon a Greek council, or are we in the synagogue of Satan? The synagogue of Satan has a president. All synagogues have a president who's in charge of it, and he basically dictates what goes on. Let me let you into a little secret. The Roman Catholic Church is not a church. It's not modeled on a Greek council chamber where there's debate and discussion and everybody is equal. It has an emperor who's in charge of it. And the emperor dictates what will happen. And you do what he tells you. Classic example of this, 1st November 1950. Pope said this, I declare by the authority invested in me that at the end of her life, the Virgin Mary ascended bodily into heaven and is now in the presence of God. That's called the doctrine of the Assumption. Not to be confused with the doctrine of the Ascension, where Jesus rose up into heaven, mentioned in Acts. 1854, a previous pope said, By the authority invested in me by God, I do declare that the Blessed Virgin Mary was born sinless, lived sinless, and died sinless. It's called the doctrine of the Immaculate Conception. They're two completely false doctrines. But guess what? Emperors can do this. They can just dictate things. And that's the problem with a non-biblical church model. It's not the church and things go wrong. Look across the broad swathe of Christianity and ask yourself this. Is this church modeled upon an old Greek city-state council where there's debate and discussion? In Tiberias, quite close to Nazareth, They had 600 people in their council, and they appointed 10 people as committee elders. When Paul gets around to writing the organization of the church, he calls those committee members elders. Churches that have elders and people are accountable to the eldership are based upon the model of Jesus Christ. There, in that well, you will find the man. He's there. You're not going to find the man by a well that he didn't have anything to do with. Look at Joel Austin. Is he in a church or is he an emperor? He's an emperor. Does whatever he wants to do. 
He isn't accountable to anyone. And as a result, false doctrine comes out of him. He teaches universalism that everybody will go to heaven. I don't see that in the word of God. You're not going to find Jesus in places where he isn't building his church. ABC is a biblically based church. You will find Christ here. The water might be a bit old, but guess what? There are springs of living water here. We can change it. We can fill things up. And the franchise is widened in the Christian church as opposed to the Greek church. Galatians chapter 3 verse 27, Paul says this, Everyone who is baptized into Christ is put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In the past, just Greek citizens who were male could participate in the church. And now it's open to everybody. Male and female, black and white, English and Welsh, it don't matter. If it's a real church where there's debate and discussion. Because God knows where there's debate and discussion, error is less likely to occur. And what does it look like in a person's life when they are faithful to the synagogue of Satan rather than being faithful to the church of Jesus Christ? These are the words of Mother Teresa towards the end of her life. This is what she said. Where is my faith? Even deep down there is nothing but emptiness and darkness. If there be a God, please forgive me. When I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such a convincing emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. John MacArthur once met her. He gave her a copy of his book, The Gospel According to Jesus Christ. She gave him a copy of the Bible. and On the front page, she inscribed, May you find salvation through the blessed mother of Jesus Christ. She was in the synagogue of Satan. Who knows what will happen to her on the day of judgment? Do you know what? We have to make sure that we're by the well where Jesus Christ is sitting. To make sure that he can unlock in us the spring of life. That's why friendship with Christ requires us to keep the covenant with each other. In all the areas that it crosses over into our life. To make sure that he will meet with us and we can meet with him. Secondly, friendship with Christ requires a relationship. To be a friend, you have to have a relationship first. But how do you build a relationship with someone you can't see? who you can't hear, but about whom you can only read in the Bible. In some ways, the disciples had it easy. They saw, heard, and met with the man. But you know what? That brought its own problems. When Nathaniel heard that Jesus had come from Nazareth, what did he say? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And the reply was, come and see for yourself. This is a personal thing. You need to come and see for yourself. Nobody else can see for you. But the issue of friendship is, as we've said, it's about availability and compatibility. How do you make yourself available to Jesus Christ? Well, Matthew chapter 6, verse 6 says this. When you pray, go into your room, close the door, and then pray to your Father who is there in that private place. He can see what is done in private, and he can reward you. There has to be that private garden in your life where you and Jesus Christ can meet. And there can be no other substitute. That's the personal availability that you have towards him. And then there comes compatibility. You know, if you live for rugby, we're probably not going to be friends, to be honest. I mean, seriously, I really do not care. But there's some things that you might really like that I might really like. And we might get on like a house on fire. So what is it that Jesus Christ really, really likes? First and foremost, he's a spiritual person. God is spirit. Jesus Christ is God. And if you're not a spiritual person, and if you don't have spiritual interest, you're going to find it very difficult to have a relationship with this man. Romans chapter 8, verse 5 to 9 says this. 
The unspiritual are only interested in material things. But the spiritual person is interested in spiritual things. It is death to limit oneself to what is unspiritual. Because life and peace can only come with concern for spiritual things. That is because to limit oneself to what is unspiritual is to make God your enemy. Because you're unable to submit to the will of God. People who are interested only in material things can never be pleasing to God. Your interests, however, are not in the unspiritual, but in the spiritual, since the Spirit of God has made his home in you. In fact, unless you possess the Spirit of Christ, you would not belong to him. What is the difference between false and true teaching? It's really, really simple. False teaching will make you feel good. True teaching will make you be good. False teaching is always, at the end of the day, materialistic. True teaching is, at the end of the day, always spiritual. What did God say through Jesus Christ in John chapter 4, verses 23 to 24? The time is coming. And it is, in fact, already here, when true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. These are the kind of people the Father wants to be his worshippers. God is spirit. So the people who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And the bottom line is this. If you're not a spiritual person, you can never be a friend of Jesus Christ. And I've never really understood how you can be a Christian and not be a spiritual person. But I've met loads of non-spiritual Christians down the years. I'm, I'm confused. It's beyond my understanding. But if you have that spiritual interest in you, do you know what? Jesus Christ will be able to establish a friendship and a relationship with you. Friends don't despise each other. But insecure people despise what they know. The Galileans were an insecure people. And they were distinct people from the people in Judah. In John chapter 4, verse 44, Jesus goes back to Galilee. And John says this, Jesus said, a prophet is not known in his own country. Jesus regarded Galilee as being his own country. Oddly enough, when he went back to Nazareth to preach, you can see the insecurity of the people there because they tried to kill him because he said basically in times past God was more willing to actually save and heal non-Jews than he was willing to save and heal Jews. Guess what? The Welsh are an insecure people. Like Israel, Israel, all that was left of Israel in Jesus' day was Galilee. Like Israel, we have fallen from power and influence to poverty and obscurity. And as a result... We take it out on our own. Can anything good come out of Ammonford? Can anything good come out of Merthyr? Churches in Wales, they will pull a preacher from the ends of the earth and Lord praises upon them, even though they don't know what they're going to say or where they're from. But they will stop their own children, their own people, in their own congregation from preaching. Why? Insecurity. That which I know I despise. That's the sign of an insecure person. We don't cultivate our talent. Unlike Jesus. This is what Jesus said about his Galilean 12 disciples. Matthew chapter 19 verse 28. When the new world comes, the Son of Man will sit on his throne of glory and you will sit on 12 thrones and you will judge the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus did not despise his own people. He did not despise his own country. Because that's what friends are for. Do not despise your own talents or your friends, or your church, or your town, or your country. And don't go looking for solutions in Australia, or America, or London, or Rome. Guess what? The solution can be found here. Yeah. And yet there's loads of people in this valley. Do you know what? They won't go to an Ammonford church. They'll go to Swansea, and Cardiff, and Newport, and Telford. Insecurity. You've got to value that which God has given you. What did God say to Moses when Moses complained he couldn't free the people of Israel? 
What's that in your hand? What is in your hand? What gifts do you have and what talents do you have? This is what friends are for. They will tell you the truth about yourself. Don't let your flawed theology get in the way of meeting Jesus. There's loads of reasons to reject him. There were loads of reasons to reject him in his own day. The scripture said Messiah would come from Bethlehem. Jesus is from Nazareth. The Messiah will free us from Rome. Jesus seems to quite like Rome. Messiah is a man. Jesus claims to be God. The Messiah obeys the law. Jesus appears to break the law. The Messiah is holy. And yet Jesus is a friend of prostitutes and publicans. Andy Gwynn was a publican. But a publican 2,000 years ago was also a brothel keeper. So he's a friend of brothel keepers. She was never a brothel keeper, as far as I'm aware. (laughs) Friend of Samaritans. Friend of women. Friend of tax collectors. Possibly a friend of terrorists. And still he's friends with Romans. I mean, seriously, there's everything wrong with this guy. Their theology stopped them from finding Jesus Christ. And we have false images of Jesus. Oh, boy. The baby Jesus. I'm glad he was born as a baby, but what use is the baby Jesus to me? He can't talk. He can't perform any miracles, seriously. And in the West, we've got the Aryan Christ, the Nordic Christ, the blue-eyed, blonde-haired, ubermensch Jesus. I mean, seriously, that's not in the Bible. I'm glad he died on the cross, but he didn't stay on the cross. He went from the cross to the grave, from the grave to the sky. And yet, a lot of churches you go in, they've got a crucifix there. It's the dead Jesus on a cross. He's not dead. He's not dead. And yet, you know what? Some people like the idea of a dead Jesus. They like the idea of a baby Jesus. And then you've got Holman Hunt with this picture of Jesus knocking on people's door, holding a lamp, looking lost. The lost Jesus is somebody that we quite like as well. But none of those, none of those are the real Jesus Christ. Do you know him? What revelation do you have of him? How is your friendship developing with him? Or do you only know him by hearsay? For me, for me, the Jesus Christ I have always loved and who I have a relationship with, he is the Jesus in Revelation 5. Let me just read you a few words here. In my vision... I heard the sound of an immense number of angels gathered around the throne and the animals and the elders. There were 10,000 times 10,000 of them and thousands upon thousands shouting, the lamb that was sacrificed is worthy to be given power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And then I heard all the living things in creation, everything that lives in the air and on the ground and under the ground and in the sea crying to the one who is sitting on the throne and to the Lamb be all praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four animals said, Amen, and the elders prostrated themselves to worship. He is my Jesus. And then I saw a powerful angel who called with a loud voice, Is there anyone worthy to open the scroll and break the seals of it? But there was no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth who was able to open the scroll and read it. And I wept bitterly because there was no one fit to open the scroll and read it. But one of the elders said to me, there's no need to cry. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed and he will open the scroll and the seven seals of it. That's my Jesus. That's the one I love. Lazarus is dead. We're all once dead in our sins. How can a dead man have faith? Salvation is a sovereign act of God's grace. A free gift from God that cannot be earned, only received. And yet, some people despise free gifts and assume they must be worthless. Like the guy who tried to give away his six-year-old BMW for nothing 
and people kept on ringing him up and saying, well, what condition are the tires in? Does it have an MOT? He couldn't give it away. But when he put it on sale for about a third less than it was worth, he sold it in a day. Some people take free gifts for granted and thus fail to value them. My daughter lives on a, an estate in Cardiff. Some of the houses are owner-occupied, some of them are social housing. You can tell the difference between the two. The owner-occupied houses look lovely. The social housing ones have mattresses outside of them. The grass is uncut. And, Je- and Lena says to me, they've been given a free house. Why do they treat it like that? I said, look, it's the sin in our hearts. We despise that which is free. You know, the, the person who has to pay a mortgage and works 50 hours a week, they will value what they have. The person who's given stuff will not value it. How do you value your salvation? It's been given to you. You didn't have to work it. Do you treat it with contempt or with respect or do you ignore it? Tell you this now, if we had to work for our salvation, we'd we'd actually treat it with more respect. Look at the zeal of Muslims, okay? They're working for their salvation, although they're not going to get it no matter how hard they work unless they turn to Jesus Christ. We would pray more, we'd read the Bible more thoroughly, we'd serve more willingly, we'd give more generously. The sin in our hearts gets us in the way of actually enjoying and embracing the salvation that God has given us. The problem is, is that when Lazarus is raised to life, he is still bound and he's still blind. And that's the case with so many Christians. And that brings me to my third point. Friendship with Christ requires fellowship with believers. After raising him from the dead, the first thing that Jesus does is to tell the people around him, to remove his bandages. Lazarus is blind and bound, and he cannot free himself, even though he's alive. And so many Christians have been given new life, but they're still blind and bound. Why? Because no one has unbound them. They can't do it themselves. Only the sighted can help the unsighted. Do you know there are whole churches filled with blind and bound Christians, like a mummy's convention? Look at that Greek term for church. They had the power to set people free. The church can't save you, but only the church can set you free. That's why it's sure. That's why we've been given power. That's why God recognizes our power in the highest place. But there's a couple of reasons why Christians don't want to be free. First of all, when you try to help them, they shuffle away. Do you want to know the truth about yourself? The first person you're going to see when your eyes are opened is yourself. You think you're a warrior, but you're a coward. You think you're powerful, but you're weak. You think you're faithful, but you're unfaithful. You think you're reliable, but you're unreliable. You think you're trustworthy, but you're untrustworthy. You think you're full of knowledge, but you're ignorant. Or maybe the opposite of all those things. Who knows? But that's what friends are for. To tell you the truth about yourself. Lazarus is alive, but he stinks. The decayed flesh has seeped into those bandages. And that is so symbolic of the way sin clings. Some Christians stink with sin. Do you know what? Some people actually stink totally. I mean, (laughs) some people suffer from BO. Some people have halitosis. I remember a guy I used to work with. I mean, he had bad halitosis. And he used to come up close to you as well when he talked, which was really disturbing. One day I just got fed up with it. I was in the kitchen with him. I said, look. Stop breathing on me, mate. It smells like you swallowed something and it died. Well, did he take offense or what? He started running around the office, going up to people, breathing on them and saying, do I, do I have bad breath? 
And the young officer said, no, 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 while gasping for breath. The older officer said, yeah, you stink. Your breath stinks. Your body stinks. He was so upset. Do you know what? The worst thing you can maybe ever do is tell somebody how unfree they are, how sinful they are. And yet, and yet, we have to do it to set people free. We allow people to continue to reek of sin because we're afraid of offending them with the truth. We'll talk about them behind their back, but we won't confront them to their face. That means we're not their friend. And there are so many examples of people who have been set free and yet they prefer to be bound. Look at the Russians. 1991, for the first time in 500 years, they had freedom. And what happened? Their whole country was pinched by about 20 people who became the oligarchs. And now most Russians are quite happy to live in an unfree state. Look at the Middle East. The only free country there is Israel. And the lovey left liberals in the West hate Israel. Why? What happens if democracy spread across the Middle East? And yet every time they attempt it, it ends up in civil war and chaos. Islam is not a free religion. It never has been and it never will be. And then you look at religion itself, Catholicism and Islam, Judaism. These are people who are bound up by their religion. And they're not being allowed to be set free because they haven't got the truth. But we have the truth, but we don't allow it to set ourselves free. The Hebrews long to be back in Egypt. Do you want your old life back or are you still living it? Still in Egypt or are you in the promised land? Look behind to see a change. If you don't see a change, guess what? You haven't changed. It's as simple as that. Sometimes church leaders do not want you to know the truth about yourself. Firstly, because you might leave, shuffling off to another church. Secondly, because in the kingdom of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. Blind flocks are a lot easier to control and con than a questioning one. I heard a terrible story last year. There was a blind school for kids in Liverpool. And these were little kids from the age of four upwards. And the story only came out last year because some of these kids now are in their 70s. There was a headmistress in that school. And she'd line up these blind kids and without warning she would hit them. Can you imagine it being a blind child living in a children's home and this woman comes and hits you and you don't know when it's going to come. You live in absolute fear. There are churches like that. I was in a church once where people were being hit. They were being hit left, right and centre. And they were kept blind. Look at Roman Catholics, my goodness. They are kept blind. And they are kept ignorant. And they are made to feel guilty about everything. And they kept on being hit. 500 million Roman Catholic women are told by a celibate Pope you can't use contraceptives. They're being hit left, right and centre. And Pentecostalism is rife with one-eyed con men leading blind men and women to hell. And thirdly, if I know the truth about myself and my situation, I have to do something about it. To live in the freedom of being unbound means taking responsibility. Then there's no one to blame if things go wrong. We expect a mummy to shuffle and fall. We expect a man or a woman to walk tall. Seeing yourself as you really are is not enough. We then have to change what we see. That's what mature Christians do. And if we don't allow somebody to take the bandages off, we will never see Jesus Christ. He's standing there right in front of us. He's the one who raised us from the dead into a new life so you could look on his face. That's what he wants. That's the relationship he wants. He wants it to be intimate, an intimate, close, covenant-based friendship. And false consciousness about Jesus Christ occurs because the stinking bandages of religion still blind us. God forbid 
that any parent should ever lose their child. But imagine what joy they would feel if that child was raised from the dead. And how awful you'd feel if that child refused to look at you. We were once dead in our sins. We have been raised from the dead. And yet we refuse to look at Jesus Christ. Because we're scared of ourselves and scared of what we might see. He's come a long way to find us. You know, in the story he went from Jordan to Bethany. He has come from heaven to Ammonford to set us free. And yet we won't let our brothers and sisters free us. And once you're free, do you know what? You can hear clearly once the bandage is removed. Some of you this morning, you'll only hear what offended you. Do you know what? Somebody needs to take the bandages off your ears. Bizarrely, I've done some preachers and people have said to me, I hated what you said there. And they'll mention something. I say, I didn't say it. You've heard what I didn't say. You heard what you wanted to say. You heard what you wanted to have offend you. You need to hear each other. And hear God by having the bandages taken off your ears. To see things as they really are by having the bandages taken off your eyes. To have your hands unbound so you can, guess what, earn your own living rather than being supported by the labours of other people. To have your feet unbound so you can get out of that bedroom and out of that house and actually see how glorious the world is and how wonderful the world is that God has given us. And if you don't do these things, do you know what? It's a simple truth. The doors to hell lock from the inside. God isn't sending anyone to hell. He's not casting anyone off. But by the choices we make, we choose darkness instead of light, falsehood instead of truth, hell instead of heaven. I don't believe in double predestination that Calvin preached. I don't believe God has intended that some go to heaven and some go to hell. We make those choices. And why is Jesus Christ my friend? It's simply this. He completes me. He completes me in a way in which no other relationship ever could. Not with my parents or my wife or my children or my friends. He makes me whole in every single way. So what happened to Lazarus after all this? Well, the Bible says nothing. But church tradition says that he was forced to leave Israel because the Sanhedrin came out and wanted to kill him. And he went to Cyprus. And in 45 AD, uh, Paul and Barnabas found him in Larnaca, and they appointed him as the head of a church there. And he died age 60. And we don't know if any of that is true, but we do know that this is true. In 890 AD, the Byzantines recaptured Cyprus, uh, having kicked out the Muslims, and they started rebuilding Larnaca. And they found a tomb. They found a marble slab. And written on the marble slab were the words, Lazarus, the friend of Christ. Now, that has the ring of authenticity to me because Jesus is quite a common name in the first century, but nobody used the name of Christ. If you go to Cyprus, go to Larnaca, they built a church over the tomb. It's still there. And personally, I I love that. I tell you what, when I come to the end of my days, do you know what? I'm not going to have my body burned like so much rubbish. I want my bones to be laid in a marble tomb And I want somebody to carve on that my name, the friend of Christ. And if Jen can afford a bigger piece of marble, I want my whole name on it. (laughs) While Leonard Skinner's Freebird is boomed out from a thousand watt double speaker. Okay? And when I've been in that other place for 10,000 years, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to come back here. 
and I'm going to find a world covered in ash, devoid of people, renewing itself, regrowing itself. It is now going to become the kingdom of God rather than the kingdom of Satan. And I'm going to find my own tomb. And I hope Lazarus comes with me. Because my testimony is this. I was raised from the dead just like Lazarus. He gave me new life. I became a Christian. And do you know what I did? I left the church. And I left the church because I was fed up of being surrounded by ignorant Christians. And I thought I could have a friendship with Jesus Christ without the church. But guess what? I'd forgot that he said, you cannot be my friend unless you obey my commandments. And I lost my friendship with him. I became Lazarus in the tomb. And because I am so stubborn, I didn't know how to come back to the church and reestablish my relationship with Jesus Christ. So he had to call me like he did with Jesus. He called me in a vision and called me back. And I came out of the tomb and there was one man in the church I went to. His name was Mick Walford. He unbound. He unbound me. He took the bandages off so I could see and so I could hear and so I could speak. And that's why I'm here today. And that's why this word is so important to me. So do not neglect your friendships with your brothers and sisters. Find Christ through them and find freedom. This message was brought to you by ABC Church. For more information, please visit our website at www.abclife.org or search for us on Facebook or Twitter. You can also contact us by phone on 01269 596000.